Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and this is episode 26B. As it is a B episode for Friday, we're going to start things off as usual with the comic book picks of the week, things that I found to be particularly good or just worth mentioning. For that list this week, we're going to go over The Many Deaths of Layla Star, number four, Captain Marvel, number 30, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number two, Homesick Pilots, number seven, Superman and the Authority, number one. Amelia Clark's co-written Mother of Madness number one, the first issue of a new Moon Knight series, and New Mutants number 20. After we get through all that comics chat, we will go through the Loki behind the scenes on Disney Plus every time they do one of these MCU shows, or at least the, the three times now that they have. When they finish them, they put up an episode called Assembled, which is the behind the scenes for these shows. So it's one episode per show, and they had a particularly long one for Loki, which was very enjoyable. I recommend you watch it if you are interested in behind-the-scenes kind of stuff. But we will be talking about everything that they went over that was interesting or relevant in some way. Once we go over that, we're going to have a few brief segments on the Dune trailer, the Batgirl movie casting news, and the Galactus HasLab updates, or rather update teases, that we've had so far. And then I'm going to wrap up the um, wrap up the episode today talking about a show that I particularly enjoy. Um, it's not really something I think you would consider nerdy, <laughs> but I definitely get sweaty about it. It's it's I, I find it fascinating for reasons. So we're going to talk about that when we get there, because I, I I really love it. And I, I, I like I said, I get sweaty about it when I talk about this show. Um, on that note, actually, uh, before we kick things off, it was, I didn't realize Monday was the third anniversary of John Schnepp's death. Um, John Schnepp, uh, was a, God, what, where'd even begin? He was a, a nerd for starters, a director, a writer, a host of podcasts, I think, but definitely of various geekery type shows and programs. Um, he worked on some projects that people don't realize. He was a great researcher for the things that he was interested in. And he was 100% unashamed for who he was and what he loved in life. And that was all things geekery. Um, and if you have heard me use the term sweaty on this. I don't mean when you get really hot and like, oh man, I've been running a lot, that kind of sweaty. Although physical sweat does sometimes happen when you are quote unquote getting sweaty about something. Um, it's more like when you get so excited um, that you're like, you know, your heart's, you get a little bit flushed, your heart starts pounding. You're just, you're just really excited about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be even physical, um, but just something that you are so passionate about that you love to talk about it and you love to go deep into like explaining it to people and anytime anybody brings it up you're like man I can talk about this for days and you get really excited when you hear people talking about it and when you get an opportunity to have that thing pop up in your life where you wouldn't normally see it and you get super excited about it that is getting sweaty about something um one of my favorite terms I have ever heard but it was coined by John Schnepp. Um, I think most people are familiar with him from um, Collider Heroes when it ran. Uh, doesn't exist anymore, but that is where I kind of try to base this podcast 
theme-wise around the kind of stuff that they would be discussing in uh, the heroes, the heroes show. So, um, and that was of course one of his, you know, brainchild, so to say, brain children. Um, but he unfortunately passed during Comic Con 2018 after some health issues that came out of absolutely nowhere as far as the public is concerned. Um, and that, that will always be something that, um, will be hard to look back on for whatever reason. This is a man who I have never met, but as I have said many times, he was my personal Stan Lee of real life superheroes. Um, if I could have chosen one real world hero to have met, it, it would be him. Um, and I would still, you know, <laughs> would, there's a lot that I would do uh, to have that conversation about those things that we love in both of our lives. So um, wherever you are now, John, I hope that you have everything you ever wanted and that you have daily sweaty chit chats with your favorite nerds throughout history. Anyway, <laughs> got a little emotional there for a second. Um, let's go ahead and get started with the rest of the show. The comic book picks, Loki behind the scenes, and then our a uh, couple of things about pop culture in the news. Before we do that real quick, let's go over uh, where else you can find me online. If you would like to support the podcast, this podcast does have a Patreon program um, for whatever you feel you get from the podcast, the entertainment that you would get from a comic book, from a you know streaming program, from whatever it is, whatever amount per month you feel is appropriate for the enjoyment and the, you know, what the, the fun you get from this podcast, what you think that might be worth. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, there is no requirement to do so. Um, the, the easiest and most free way to do to support the podcast would be to share it with people who you think would also enjoy it. Um, but if you would like to financially support it, there is that Patreon program. It's just under Sensational She Geek if you look. And I am working on some patron rewards uh, by way of sticker designs that I'm trying to come up with and get made. I've been doing some research on sticker companies, which has been a lot of fun. I got some free samples. But I knew, uh, hopefully I will have that those stickers set up in the next couple of weeks. Um, and that will go out to anyone who becomes a new patron will get a 2021 patron program, uh, sticker. And then I guess every year I'll probably make a new one. So that's something fun that you will get if you decide to do that. No worries if you don't. Otherwise, like I said, the best way to support the podcast, uh, non-financially is to just share it with people who you think will enjoy it. Um, I do have a social media Instagram. It's Anna with the comics because my name is Anna and I have the comics. My Twitter is Savage She Geek. It's used a whole lot less. And this podcast is available everywhere podcast stream besides Pandora, but including YouTube, which is also where I have uh, some figure review videos and things. And then on my website, which is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, we have, um, aside from a whole lot of written reviews and pull lists and pick lists and things like that that you can go over in your free time if you would like to, I have the links to these podcast episodes, my podcast notes, which consist of the loose outline of what I'm going to go over on the podcast in case you either are hearing impaired or dislike the sound of my voice. You have access to that to still keep up with the podcast. Um, and I think that's it. I think that covers all of my social media. Um, I, I, uh, I appreciate any 
any support that anyone does give to the podcast in any form um, and any any financial support that does come through to the podcast just as a reminder will be used for the podcast that will be um, instead of having to take time away from working on preparing a new podcast I will be able to or as in prepare for a podcast taking time away to make money <laughs> somewhere else making money from the podcast itself will make will let me focus on the podcast itself more okay got that one now finally <laughs> If you would like to skip over the comic book picks for the week and get straight into what I have to say about the Loki behind the scenes episode, go ahead and jump to about 52 minutes in and I will be wrapping that up and getting into the behind the scenes right around that time. Starting in our comic book picks this week, for the most part everything I have on here um, I really enjoyed. The Many Deaths of Layla Starr, Woman of Tomorrow, Homesick Pilot, Superman and the Authority, uh, and New Mutants, I, I very much enjoyed all of those. Captain Marvel, Mother of Madness, and Moon Knight, I have on this list because I either have something to point out about it, or like Mother of Madness and Moon Knight, they're just number ones that were kind of, you know, people could be curious about and I read them, so I will let you know what I thought about those. But let's start um, with The Many Deaths of Layla Star. This is... <laughs> a, I still don't think anything will ever... Um, will ever surpass the am amazement that I felt in reading the third issue of this. Ramvi decided to portray the entire issue from the perspective of a cigarette. And that sounds impossible, but it was one of the most phenomenal things I have ever read. I was, I still am just thinking on it. Every time I think about it, I still am endlessly impressed. Um, I knew this issue wasn't going to top that, but it's still, it, it was right there. It was really good. Um, this is only going to be a five issue series because well, what's happening here can only go on for so long, of course. Um, but I just, eh, forever impressed. Um, I know Rom V has been doing some DC stuff. It's, it's whatever. I'm not super big fan of it. I've been buying the Catwoman issues for the Jenny Frizen covers and to see what's going on with Poison Ivy. Um, but this, this is, it's like day and night, my interest in these series. And I'm actually curious if somebody does not like the many deaths of Layla Starr, if they like his DC writing. Um, of course, I always feel like when quote unquote big two writers move to indie stuff to write, um, they tend to have more creative control. And so it tends to be much more, uh a solid vision <laughs> that the writer is able to, to put out there and therefore better in my opinion. Um, the Minidus of Layla Star, I, I'm so sad there's only one more issue, but where we're at in this, it's, this was an issue that was so necessary to get us to the climax of the final issue. You can kind of see what's happening. Layla Star is the human who died and the soul or the, you know, the spirit of death the god death was put into her body and she keeps dying <laughs> and that's why it's called the many deaths of Layla star but then her buddy the god of life keeps bringing her back but he can only do that after x amount of time after she's died um and at this point she's trying Layla slash death is trying to track down this particular man who was a baby the first time she saw him at the beginning of the story um who is destined to invent immortality 
and therefore that's why she wasn't needed in heaven anymore because immortality is on the way, folks, supposedly. Um, and at this point in the story, because she keeps dying and coming back oftentimes decades later, the man is going to be, I think, in the next issue, in the final issue, in his 60s. The last issue, he finally was able to come face to face with her, knowing, or rather having confirmed with himself, that he had been seeing her, the same woman, the same age, the same exact everything, his whole life. Um, he finally is able to confront her, she tells him what she is, and why she's here. Um, and to her surprise, she becomes the reason that he becomes so adamant to create immortality. Um, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. It's amazing um, when, when, you, when you see that piece fall into place and you see that knowledge fall onto death slash Layla Starr's face and she just, oh shit, I did this to myself. Um, however, at the end of the issue, we find out that as it has been 20 some odd years since the last time she saw him, where he was around 40, um, it, things are getting a bit late in life, and apparently he has not discovered immortality yet. So we'll have to see in the fifth issue, is he going to discover immortality and the people of the world will never die again? Or is that just some weird false prophecy where, um you know, no, that's going to happen and she'll go back to being death. Or perhaps is it death herself who discovers immortality on behalf of the man and sacrifices herself somehow to allow him to achieve his dream. That's kind of what I'm leaning on right now. Um, but as if you can't tell, this has been a trip. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. It's been, um, an unpredictable journey. There are some things that you see happening in each issue as they go along, but as a whole, it has not been generally very predictable. Um, and I, I love that. I love how creative it is. I love how Ram V has brought in his native um, Indian culture and lifestyles and everything like that. It's a beautiful perspective that we don't normally see in traditional comics. And it's so refreshing to have that kind of different perspective. <laughs> I'm so tired of the straight white man stories. Let's give it something else. Speaking of straight white men, this actually is straight white women. Captain Marvel, number 30. Um, so I know last time we had an issue of Captain Marvel come out, I was very critical of it. I'm not going to be, to be honest, very much less critical of this one. But there's one particularly interesting thing about this. Um, that I wanted to kind of point out. So you had two stories in this issue of Captain Marvel, issue 30. The first story is by uh, Kelly Thompson, who has written all of these past 30 issues. Um, art by whoever it was who did the art in the last issue. They, they have such a horrible uh, mess of rotating artists on this series. It's just, it's a trade wreck of a decision in my, point, in my opinion. But what are you going to do about it as a reader? <laughs> uh, besides bitch on it on the internet, right? <laughs> um, but what's interesting is the second story, because that was written and drawn by Jamie McKelvey. Um, if you're familiar, Jamie McKelvey has done a number of things, uh, mostly art, very well known for his, I believe Jamie McKelvey is, is male uh, for his art. I'll just say their art. Um, Particularly The Wicked and the Divine, if you have ever read that series, and the second volume of Young Avengers, where America Chavez joins the team um, 
and they are basically fighting through the multiverse um and all the adults in the world are like incapacitated it's something like that but if you're if you've read any of that that art is all done by jm mckelvey same as the wicked and the divine jm mckelvey also was the artist who designed carol danvers's captain marvel outfit uh her her classic captain marvel suit um, so that was very exciting. I was like, okay, cool, we have this cute little story. It's Kamala Khan and Carol, and uh, they meet up with their superhero identities and have a nice little chat. That little story at the back, it was in time with, um, it wasn't like a one-shot off-kilter of everything else. It did follow, it was like the wrap-up to this plot, this, um, this whole storyline about Ove and going to the past or the future and Ove coming back with her, um, it kind of wrapped all of that up. But it did... <laughs> Jamie McKelvey did I, 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 I multiple times better, um, ridiculous amounts better than this that first story by Kelly Thompson and the other artist. Um, I don't... I don't think it's fair to say that Jamie McKelvey knows the character better. I don't think that's fair to say at all, but I definitely think Jamie McKelvey wrote the character better in this little story as opposed to the first half of the issue by the regular series writer, um, which says a lot. And I think that Marvel might be about to change the writer of Captain Marvel. God, I hope they don't cancel it and restart it. Please let the numbering get somewhere close to 50. <laughs> that's the last time that she had... A series that went longer than like 25 issues was it went to 50 from Ms. Marvel um, by Brian, whatever his name was back back in like the you know Civil War post. It was right post House of M, just post House of M. Um, but anyway, I just thought that was very interesting. Jamie McKelvey did such a noticeably more phenomenal job. Um, you could even say Damon McKelvey did a good job, whereas the first half did not do a very good job. It was insanely predictable. Um, the relationship dynamics didn't make much sense, especially between Carol and Rhodey. You guys have been broken up for a week, and the first thing she did was go and have sex with Doctor Strange. First thing she did! And then, like, went off and did this magic stuff, but, like, He's just gonna blow right past that and be like, it's okay, babe. I still love you. Were you guys even properly broken up yet? Like, this is like um that thing from Friends. Were they on a break? Which, yes, they were on a break. No, he shouldn't have slept with her because... I don't even remember the context, but I remember thinking that no, he shouldn't have slept with whoever that second girl was because it was way too soon. Carol, this was way too soon for you to have sex with another man after breaking up with Rhodey and him being cool with it way too soon. I don't feel like that's realistic. You know, I've never been in a situation like that myself, but I just don't see that as being super realistic. Um, let me know if you feel differently. And the whole thing about me being predictable, she gets the little, you know, dragon eye, the serpent eye, or whatever it was from underwater, and she shows up to Enchantress, and Enchantress tells her what it is, and you immediately know she's gonna give it to Ove to depower him. That's like obvious. And she said all this stuff about, oh, I'm gonna try and take it. She's obviously not gonna take it. It was obviously meant for Ove. And then it turned out, there was like, oh yeah, it's a twist. I meant it to be for Ove. Well, no, it's not a twist. We saw this coming from page two. Um, I don't know. I just, th the fact that the Jamie McKelvey story 
overshadowed the main story, or rather the Kelly Thompson story, so much more. Um, not a good sign for the main series, um, but hopefully a sign that they are about to make a transition um, in the writer for this, because I think while I have really, really enjoyed a lot of Thompson's Captain Marvel, there have also been parts that, like recently, just are not working, and this this is not working for me for Captain Marvel. Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow is by Tom King with Bilquis Evely, probably mispronounced that, but she is killing it on the art. This is two of eight. I was kind of sad that it was only eight issues. Tom King normally does 12 issues if he's doing one of these like maxi series, but he's only doing eight with this one and I'm kind of sad. As I've said many times before, my main overarching hope for all of this series is that it ends with Supergirl changing her name to Superwoman. And I know the whole Man of Tomorrow thing is what the, super, the, the Woman of Tomorrow is kind of referencing, but could it also be referencing a change in her name? Because girl and woman? No, maybe? Um, if I had one main concern about this issue, um, did Crypto die? I honestly can't tell if, if Crypto died or if she's going off to find a way to save him. Because what happened was he got hit with poisoned arrows, um, which, you know, full-size humans or whatever, humanoids would be fine with because they're bigger, but since he's a little doggy boy, um, he got really, really sick and the only antidote was the guy who made the poison who ran off with her ship, um, who also killed this little, the farm girl who she's going on this adventure with, killed her father. Um, <laughs> but then they don't really say, they don't really clarify there was one line that was something like it was too much for him but then they don't really say does that mean he's dead i've noticed tom king really likes killing animals in his books because he did that with agatha in um vision the was it yeah vision it's a series vision um agatha killed her cat in that <laughs> so I wouldn't be surprised, I guess, if he killed Crypto, but what the fuck, Tom King? Come on. Also, he's a super dog. He should have had a little bit of a leg up over what a normal dog would have had. But anyway, um, where we left the, the first issue was Crypto and Kara had been shot up with these arrows, um, and the dude steals her ship. So, um, being on a red sun planet, she is not at her best but she's able to get the girl who she's kind of protecting now and Crypto to a doctor. That's where that whole thing with Crypto that I'm not really sure if he's dead or alive happens. And then they go off and they start their journey to finding this guy who, I think that's what it is. They're looking to find this guy who killed um, this girl's father. And there's the entire issue is very densely narrated. Not in a way that they would have done back in the 70s, like in Defenders comics or, or Doctor Strange comics in the 70s, nothing like that. Um, it's narrated as it is like her journal, um, the young girl who was going with Kara. Um, and so she's telling her story while she's going over their story of what's happening on this trip, on this little adventure. And basically what it is is they spend what seems to be weeks upon months of traveling across space 
in a very plebeian manner because, of course, Kara does not have her powers because she's on the wrong side of the universe for yellow suns. She's on their kind of like, they kind of make it sound like there's all red suns back that way. And as they get closer and closer to where there is a yellow sun planet, she slowly starts getting more and more of her abilities back until the end of the issue where the girl finally witnesses her, um, like at her full power level where, um, you know, she first starts to notice that Kara's, like, back in business when she knocks this big old alien boy out with, like, one shoulder- with one elbow punch to the nose. <laughs> and then at the end of the issue, they walk outside and Kara is once again able to fly and, um, you know, full, clearly fully powered and back on top. So, really triumphant ending to a very emotional and informative issue. Uh, there was also a fight in this where- um, apparently red kryptonite pills are used, um, I guess, I guess if a normal person takes them, they basically get high. It's like a psychedelic. Um, but then if a Kryptonian takes it, they get like crazy weird powers is kind of how she described it. Um, but I guess red kryptonite is a illicit drug through the galaxy, kind of like pot, because the one guy who gives her his red kryptonite tablet says, I have a medical card for that. It's like, that's, that's funny. Um, so she takes it and she kind of like powers up into this crazy, like fire monster thing and takes out this space dragon that was going to take out the entire ship that she was on. Um, and that was her without even, without even being powered up properly. So, um, we're only two issues in. Of course, that is a quarter of it so far. This is very much a Tom King feeling series, um, where you have, uh, I can't really put my finger on it, but it's, 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 it's a character who is going on a journey, um, emotionally not just physically. Um, they're, they're learning things about themselves and about their own world. I don't know, that's just comics, isn't it? <laughs> this is, but this does feel distinctively Tom King-like. The art is the thing that makes it not feel like a Tom King comic because it is decidedly feminine art. Um, it's like, it's like, I, I would describe it as high sci-fi art. Um, a lot of comics are like fantasy kind of art, but her art reminds me of science fiction, um, especially old like Asimov stuff. Like that's what it makes me think of how she draws a lot of these backgrounds and pages. And it's absolutely gorgeous. There's a number of panels in this that have Supergirl um, reacting to things that I, I want to get little tiny prints of these panels because she gets her face and her, her design just absolutely beautiful. And the personality well, rather, the personalities of the two girls who are going on this trip together are very entertaining. They are extremely, um, they're, they're complete foils for each other, where you have the young girl from this alien planet with the red sun, who is extremely meek and polite and nothing but full of manners and her mission. Um, and then you have Kara, who is kind of like, not nihilistic, but she's much more of a, like, yeah, okay, let's do it. All right, whatever. You know what it is? It's she has a very fuck it attitude. Um, and I feel like that is perfect for Kara because as they kind of start to go into for this, she's been through a lot 
and people don't really give her credit for that. Um, one thing that was very poignant for her character and that made me really think of potentially this could be showing that she is going to upgrade her name to show that she is more than just a little girl, potentially, um, was when this girl she's traveling with asks her, um, when your planet was destroyed, did you ever consider going back and, um, and, you know, taking revenge for those who were responsible? And, because of course, you know, Clark left Krypton as a baby. He doesn't know any of that stuff. He doesn't remember anything. Kara was a teenager. She had a whole life on that planet before it was destroyed by her own people. Um, and so that was that was a really interesting thing for her to bring up right there, especially seeing as this mission they're on is a mission of revenge. And Kara's answer was, no, she never did that. But the narration of it by this girl who's on this adventure with her says that she hears the regret in her voice. And that goes into, I think, a lot of why Kara wanted to get wasted on her 21st birthday with a red planet or a red sun planet. Um, she's been through it, man. She has been through it and hasn't really had the life that she... Th she was born thinking she was going to have one life and she was sent from Krypton thinking she was going to have another and neither of those lives have come to fruition. Um, you can't put yourself in those feet, really. It's a, it's a remarkable situation and I'm so, so excited to see it getting delved into like this and Tom King is totally the one to do it. Homesick Pilots number seven continues to be absolutely fantastic. Every time I talk about Homesick Pilots, I talk about how I knew a couple of pages into this first issue for this series that I was going to love it forever. And it is only getting more and more interesting. The last issue ended with the reveal that, um, I believe her name is Meg, the girl who survived the murder spree of <laughs> the ghost house. Um, she can use salt to help her control the ghosts. Um, or to kind of get them away from her. However, when she was finally able to get them off of her to see what they wanted, um, the ghost being the blood that was attached to her body that wouldn't wash off, they basically told her that the house, the ghost house that almost killed her, uh, and apparently did kill them, is still out there and it won't let their souls go and they're being tortured um, by being in this existence still. So now she's like, okay, well, I guess I have to stay and do this because I felt their pain. I understand it. This is my duty now. Um, meanwhile, the Ami, who was the girl who was piloting the ghost house the last time that we saw it, she, we get to see that she and her buddy actually did survive um, the, the house having crashed into the water not only that, the house has also survived and the house is following them trying to get her to come back and, and join them. Um, it's really, it's very creepy um, how they kind of, if you've ever had dreams of being chased, they write it very much like that, uh, where you, they can't see the thing that's chasing them, but they know that it's there all the time. Or rather, Ami can feel that it's there all the time because she's connected to it. It's very spooky. I like it a lot. <laughs> um, so what's going to end up happening, I think, in the series going forward is you now have Ami trying to kind of escape the ghost house and you have Meg with her new, like, ghost mecha thing 
and she's trying to destroy the ghost house and we're still not really sure what its goal or purpose is. Um, we kind of had the feeling in the beginning that maybe it was like a good thing and then now we've clearly come to see, well, it kills people. It's definitely not a good thing, but is it a bad thing? I guess? But are, is it worse than what the people who are using trapped ghost souls to pilot their own mech? I don't know if it's worse than that. Um, it's pretty much the same thing as that, actually. <laughs> Besides murdering more people, I guess. Um, so I'm really curious to how, right now we're kind of in this middle ground of nobody's really good and nobody's really bad. Everybody's trying to survive the best way they can and do what they think is right. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how everything is going to get characterized and portrayed um, for the next couple of issues, because I feel like we're on the cusp of something big happening or something big changing. Um, and that's, that's very exciting for me. Superman and the Authority was issue one of four by Grant Morrison and Mikhail Jan, just as a friendly reminder. Oh, and covered, colored by Jordi Belair. Friendly reminder, Grant Morrison is non-binary. Um, please, if you refer to them in a conversation, I will try to keep up with this myself. It is a little bit difficult to switch your thought process to this, but it is possible and it doesn't do you any harm to follow people's gender um, pronouns as they want it to be. It does nobody any harm to do that. Uh, you just, you just gotta remember, that's it. So, um, just would like to remind everyone of that for when you discuss the series yourself, because I really, I really, I dug this. First off, something that I knew going into it, um, this is not normal at all, but DC and the pub and the distributors reached out to local comic shops everywhere. Basically they said, um, that, that for the first two issues, I think it was the first two issues of this, they are allowing local comic shops to return unpurchased issues. That's interesting. Um, they don't do that very often, if at all, um, to the best of my knowledge. I've never heard of that happening before for a really big comic like this. Um, I wasn't sure what that meant. Honestly, after having read it, I'm still not really sure what that means. Um, I have one, I have one idea of what it might mean. I'll get to that in a second. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is Grant Morrison has been very clear in publicity that this is going to be their last DC work. Um, as far as I've read, at least, this is what they're planning to be the last thing they do for DC Ever, which is a big deal as well. Grant Morrison has been at DC. Uh, I don't even know how long. <laughs> the amount of stuff that, that they've done for DC. Um, Multiversity, I remember, was the first thing that I, I saw their name on. And I remember just... I, I couldn't even wrap my head around it. Because I was just getting into current DC stuff. And, well, I think it was really current stuff... As, as a whole in comics as opposed to reading, you know, catch up reading on volumes and stuff. And that's what was happening then. And that's why I didn't read current DC stuff in a long time. Looking back on that, now that I have a lot more knowledge about these kinds of things, Multiversity is fucking bonkers and awesome. And only somebody like Grant Morrison could have come up with it. <laughs> it's, it's, the map of the multiverse looks like 
I don't even know how to describe it. It looks like just it's it's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. <laughs> it's a very neat mess, technically. I mean, if you want to be real about it. But anyway, Superman and the Authority. So I said there was one thing I could see as to potentially being the reason why um, DC and the publisher, the the distributors, are allowing comic shops to return unsold issues. There is something happening with Superman in this. Now, this is, as far as I can tell, it must not be canon. It's not Black Label, which makes me think it is canon, but I guess this must just be a Superman from another reality because it takes place very much in the future where Superman is an aging man um, who is kind of, he doesn't really have, he does not have at all his full powers. He's kind of losing his powers. Um, I'm not a hundred. I'm not familiar really with uh, this character who comes into it. I, I'm really not familiar with, but he's he's this British character who looks like a pink-haired John Constantine. He talks like Constantine. He looks like Constantine. Besides the pink hair and his attitude and demeanor are exactly like Constantine. And he smokes cigarettes indoors like John Constantine. So I'm not sure who that character is to be completely honest. But he seems to have some kind of like mental powers where he can. Um, make you think you see things that aren't there. Possibly other things as well. Like I said, not familiar with the character. Um, one thing I really, really loved in the first couple of pages, you see what turns out to be, I believe, Superman arriving in uh, the city. And he comes down, he touches down, and he says, Men, women, others. Oh, Grant Morrison. I love you. <laughs> Obviously, being a non-binary person himself, excuse me, non-binary person themselves, Grant would see something like that as being unnecessary um, and normal thing to want to put in their comics and to have other people read in their comics. And I love that they went ahead and did it. I, I think... Um, Let's be real here for a second, and I'm gonna get some haters for this, I'm sure. Gender's a social construct. <laughs> sex is different, biological sex is different, but gender is a social construct. Um, and even biological sex is different than we think about it because there are so many variations that we like to pretend aren't there. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, I honestly, like I said at the beginning, it does not cost you anything to call someone by their chosen pronouns or uh, chosen pronouns is not the correct term um, that would allude that they chose this um, by their given pronoun, the pronouns that they are telling you are their pronouns. Um, that it doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> and as I, as my, my husband and I were discussing it yesterday, um, I, I see it on the internet a lot. People saying stuff under trans peoples and non-binary peoples, um, social media stuff in the comments. Oh, I just call it like I see it. I see a woman, I call it a woman. And of course, I'm sorry, children who are listening. Um, but my response, if I ever hear that in real life, my response to that is going to be, okay, well, I do that too. I see you a pussy, I'm going to call you a pussy. That's, that's just my like inner rage towards people. It doesn't cost you anything to call people by their pronouns. It doesn't cost you a damn thing. Um, all it does is actually make the world go be a little bit nicer for everybody. So why would you fight that? But... Uh, my point there <laughs> was that Grant Morrison putting in the men, women, others, 
I feel like that is the next step in normalizing these things. I know there was uh, American Gods, not American Gods, um, the Sandman uh, movie, is it? Or TV show, whatever it is that they're doing, got a lot of hate for whatever reason for putting the actor's pronouns on the announcements. That's how you normalize these things. It doesn't hurt to see that. It doesn't wound you. It doesn't take you down a notch. It doesn't make you feel bad about your own pronouns. It's just clarifying so that there is no confusion. That's it. It hurts no one. All it does is make things better. So anyway, I love that, I love that they put that in there to kind of normalize it. Um, put that step forward of normalizing it. But that also leads me towards why... Um, I might be thinking that DC and the distributors are allowing these returns of these issues. And that is because I think this Superman might be gay. Um, there was a bit where he's talking to the, 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 the British guy with the pink hair who looks like, um, Constantine, but isn't somehow. Um, he, he they're talking to each other and... This guy references how the world turned against him when he came out about something to them. We know he has a son. That was Brent, that was mentioned in this. Um, not sure about a wife or any situation of a woman in his life. But the fact that, that character made the mention of the world started treating you differently when they found out your truth. And the fact that this Superman came out to specifically said men, women, and others. One of those factors is because, yes, Grant Morrison did write this, and I believe that that is them trying to normalize that, but also a, a person who is queer in some way, genderqueer or otherwise, would probably have that be more normalized in their conversational speech and would say something like that to whoever they're approaching normally. Um, so I, I think this Superman might, is queer in some way, and I think that's why, um, DC is allowing returns. Watch this end up being something really lame, like, yeah, Lois died of cancer or something like that. It's like something really not dramatic at all. I'm just saying this is my take on it, issue one. Um, so who knows? But also my take on it, issue one, this shit is phenomenal. Uh, this is Grant Morrison's apparent last work for DC, and they are putting their all into it. This feels like a passion project that has been thought the fuck through and is now finally being portrayed. This feels like, like Mikhail Janin heard Grant Morrison's ideas and just was like, here, let me start drawing you some sketches of what we're going to put in this, because it, the team feels like it works out perfectly, like they have the correct ideas, the same exact ideas of where they're going and what they want to do with this four issues, and it's just four issues. But it's his wrap-up, it's, excuse me, it's Morrison's wrap-up for DC, and for some reason, DC's allowing you to return it, or shops to return him, so... I think the Superman's queer, but we'll wait till issue two to find that out or until marketing, you know, spoils it. <laughs> we'll see what happens first. New Mutants number 20. I have to go back a little bit because I didn't talk about New Mutants number 19 when it came out last month, because to be completely honest, I hadn't read it yet when I hit up that week's uh, picks podcast, but life has been nuts, okay? I feel like today is Tuesday. <laughs> It's Friday, but I feel like it's a Tuesday. 
I don't know where time has gone. I swear I just recorded a podcast yesterday, but apparently it's Friday, so here we are. <laughs> uh, what are we? What's life? New Mutants, that's what we're doing. Uh, this is by Vita Ayala. The issue 19 was taking place uh, kind of at the Hellfire Gala. Well, yeah, it was the Hellfire Gala. And the issue ended, notably, with Gabby... Um, who is Scout, who is Laura's sister, who is Wolverine's clone's clone. I think is how that kind of works. She died. Um, it's difficult to say if she was killed, but the assumption is yes. Most likely she was killed. Um, not as big of a deal, I guess, as Scarlet Witch having been killed at the end of the Hellfire Gala. Possibly, or partially, because nobody really knows that she's dead. Um, because when they find her body, her little mutant friends, uh, which, oh god, that sounded so derogatory. Her little mutant friends. Oh my god. <laughs> that, it wasn't meant to sound that way. Her friends who are mutants, um, they find her and, her body, rather, um, and they do that thing, uh, if you recall, um... Shadow King taught them how to switch bodies and they discover it only really works if they jump into dead bodies. So no girl who is, if you recall, just a brain floating around in a jar. Um, it makes sense why she would want a body. She body jumps into the dead scout body um, and they just kind of go around and they decide, okay, we can't tell anybody about this for whatever reason, they don't want to tell anybody, because I guess they think that they're going to get in trouble for whatever Gabby was doing. Um, whatever that may have been. And so they're like, okay, we're going to we're gonna resurrect her by ourselves. We're not going to tell the five. We're just going to do it ourselves. You guys, no! What is... <laughs> no! So No Girl body jumps into Gabby, and they go around, and she pretends to be Gabby to everybody they run into, including her own goddamn brother, Akihiro Dakin who clearly knows that something's up and she just is like an absolute ass to him and just moves on. He's like crushed, honestly, by what she says. Um, but yeah, it's, this is obviously not going to go well. Um, meanwhile, Rain, who is Wolfsbane, she has been having some kind of deal with Shadow King as well. Um, and she pops up in the resurrection chamber at the same time that these little children, new mutants pop up there most likely both of them are being manipulated by Shadow King, probably to opposite ends, and that's gonna cause a problem. But I'm I'm just I'm digging what Vita is doing with the series. Vita is another non-binary writer, by the way. Um and obviously I I don't have any concerns about Scout coming back. At the worst, I would assume that Scout comes back in an inferno at the latest. Because I 100% expect to see Madeline Pryor in Inferno, and Madeline Pryor was one of the cases that Scout cited when talking about clones who are not allowed to come back through resurrection protocols, as opposed to herself, who apparently is. Um, so my thought is possibly she won't be successfully resurrected until Inferno when Madeline Pryor is resurrected, and she'll then be on their side of things uh, for whatever is going down for Inferno. Uh, the last two issues I want to talk about, we have uh, Moon Knight and Mother of Madness, both number ones. Moon Knight was 
It was fine. It was, it was, it's got potential in it for sure. I don't feel as connected to it as I do with other series, especially indie stuff on the first issues. Um, this doesn't feel like something that I'm going to be reading for a very long time. I might pick up the second issue kind of to see where it goes. Uh, but the thing that was most memorable for me in this was the art, actually. I'm not sure who the artist was, but, um, it was very much... Batman-esque, <laughs> which is obviously very perfect for Moon Knight. Um, and we do get a new villain in this. One thing Moon Knight has always been called is the Fist of Khonshu, Khonshu being an Egyptian deity. Um, a point that was kind of brought up in this is that a person has two fists, who is the other fist, and here um, we're apparently meeting the other fist. I don't recall the name, but he shows up first cameo or possibly first full appearance. I'm not sure how they're going to categorize it. Uh, but he does show up in this issue at the very end, uh, no doubt to be a villain for Moon Knight to have to deal with. And we do still have Moon Knight having multiple personalities. Um, part of the reason that I want to check this out is because as with, I'm sure the bullshit that's happening with the America Chavez series right now, they tend to, Marvel Comics tends to put stuff out prior to movies, uh, MCU movies, that will kind of line up in the, co the comics with the MCU movies. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Loki is an example where it works really well. Um, trying to take out the X-Men and replace them with the Inhumans is an example of where it did not work very well. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, and I am a fan of the Inhumans, and I'm saying that, so... Uh, I'm, I'm this addition of having the two fists of Khonshu, I think is it is just the potential to be really cool. Last time I saw Moon Knight was in that shitty Avengers arc that was not very interesting, and I'm a big fan of Egyptian of ancient Egyptian aesthetic, and that was full of it, and I still did not find it very interesting. But this Moon Knight, obviously written by a completely different person, um, a lot better than that whole arc already. <laughs> So I'll, I'll probably pick up the second issue, see if it's headed in a cool direction, but I definitely recommend you check out the art if you're a fan of that kind of like spooky Batman fly-by-night stuff. Cape-by-night, I guess. Finally, we have Mother of Madness number one, which is of course co-written by Amelia Clark of Game of Thrones and several other things, as well as Marguerite Bennett. I'm not going to pick up the second issue of this. Um, I'm sure there's going to be people who really liked it. I'm sure many of those people really like it because of who's writing it, and they're probably big fans of hers. It's okay. It was alright. Um, I wasn't a particular fan of how it was narrated. Um, what, what is it? Um, fourth wall narration? Breaking the fourth wall narration? I didn't like that at all. I can see what they were trying to do, but I don't think it worked. Um, and that honestly was probably because of the art. Um, the art, when she was doing the narrations, it wasn't really clear that she was talking to us, the reader. Um, you've seen that happen in shows, right? Where people will narrate something as they walk through the scene and look at the camera while they're narrating it and just go about their business and nobody else in the scene will like know the cameras are there because it's like in their head. Um, it was, it's supposed to be like that, but it didn't really pan out, I think, the way that they intended. So... I, and, and the, the plot of it is, there was so much, so much backstory explanation. These things tend to work better if you kind of trickle it out as it gets important to know. Um, and this was definitely not that. This was all in one big dump. You get to learn everything about her, pretty much, it seemed. Um, 
which is fine. Again, you know, it's not like I have a comic out there, so... <laughs> but it, I just, I just, I definitely feel like it was missing a spark for me. It has um, nice ideas. The, the original part of it is that she, this woman who has the powers, she... Her powers work differently depending on how her emotional state is, which on one hand is kind of cool. On the other hand, it's kind of problematic because women in emotional states tend to be really overdone in media in a misogynistic way. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, if if you picked it up and you liked it, good for you. Uh, wasn't really my thing, so I'll just, you know, not read the second issue. But good for you if you liked it. All right, now let's talk Loki, which was the behind-the-scenes documentary episode of Assembled for the Loki TV show, which I immediately have to point out. This was an hour and something minutes long. Not a single one of the episodes was that long. You guys, and they referenced having six hours of this? No, it was not even five hours. Liars. Liars. It was not six hours. I don't really have any other problems with it besides that. I do, I will say, nobody nobody brought up Lady Loki, the, the proper Lady Loki from the comics. They did flash her on screen very briefly when they were talking about uh, the, Sof- the Sylvie, not Sophie, Sylvie Enchantress. Um, but they didn't really mention the fact that, that was two separate people. They didn't really mention the fact that she goes by Lady, that there was any character going by Lady Loki at all. Um, all they really did was they basically straight up admitted to crushing a female Loki character together with um, the, the Sylvie Enchantress from the comics, which, once again, I have so many issues with because you're taking two female characters that we could have had and you're making them one. And that is 50% of the female characters that we potentially could have had. And I see that as a problem, but whatever. Um, I, I also not having I also see not having had Lady Loki, the proper Lady Loki in there as a problem. But that's more of my, like, tinfoil hat shit, where I feel like they're, like, anti-queer, um, because she's, like, hella queer in every way, and I feel like they didn't want to show that because she's basically a drag queen, and they didn't want to have to, uh, put that kind of stuff in their film to have to explain, but, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, the first thing that there is to notice about this was that they... Uh, they made it very, very different from the the other behind-the-scenes thing. Um, I felt like the Falcon and the Winter Soldier behind-the-scenes was, was pretty boring. Um, the WandaVision one had some cool tidbits, but not a whole lot of actual behind-the-scenes, this-is-what-we-did-in-the-moment kind of stuff. Um, it was just very broad. Um, with very with just a few little specific things. And then the Falcon and the Winter Soldier one had probably five minutes of interesting information in it surrounding their decisions with Sam and Captain America and whatnot um, before it was just boring as all out. <laughs> so I hope, I, I'm assuming here, that they took some of the audience responses to those two other episodes and they have come out with a third, very much better one here for the Loki episode of Assembled. Um... One of the things that was my favorite part, probably, of this whole behind-the-scenes episode was Tom Hiddleston going over that ridiculously iconic moment from 2013 Comic-Con where he comes out on stage dressed as Loki. 
I swear I will never get tired of hearing people tell their stories about that day where he came out in costume, which we now know, I don't know if we knew before, I now know is was Kevin Feige's idea. As Tom Hiddleston himself says in the documentary here, it was an unrepeatable moment. Uh, just... I remember seeing that. I remember my sister was a mega fan of him immediately and just her reaction to it. And I just thought it was really cool because it was, it was the nerds getting a rock star (laughs) and the world was accepting that, that this was rock star status for nerd shit. And that was awesome. (laughs) It was kind of like, you know, we felt like, oh, this is a big moment for all of comics history, I think. Um, Just like the MCU 20 years ago, nobody would have believed us that this stuff would have been happening in the MCU. We would have had an MCU period. Nobody would have believed us. We were getting shitty daredevils at that point. Like, we hadn't even gotten the shitty daredevil, I think, in 2001. But it's, it's, it's iconic and, yes, completely unrepeatable. One thing that I am a, a touch surprised about, actually, but really also very pleased to learn is that they didn't, the showrunners didn't really have everything for the show planned out from the start. Um, it's kind of an amazing thing about the MCU is that they seem to kind of fly by the seat of their pants and make it all work as they go along. And sure, with some things like we clearly know we're leading up to the Fantastic Four somewhere in a few years. But then with stuff like WandaVision and Loki, they kind of seem to just have an idea of where they want to end up and then spend some time figuring out how to make it work and to wind up there as they go along. And the amazing thing is that as a viewer, you you don't see any of that uncertainty. It all looks like a perfectly planned route from start to finish. And, and that's genius, in my opinion. Um, one of the things that I think it was... Um, I think it was Tom Hiddleston that said in the documentary episode, he said, quote, let's blow up what people think the show is. Um, and then someone had said about Tom Hiddleston and Tom Hiddleston was quoted to have saying the show is about self-acceptance. And I had to stop at that point of the documentary and think about it because it really, really is. And that, you know, it, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better about the whole Loki-Sylvie romance in that sense, in that he's kind of, see, he's seeing this other version of himself that is so similar, yet so different. And he's learning, and he's he's seeing how fantastic she is. And in a sense, I suppose you could say that that is kind of giving himself a little bit of a much needed ego boost at this point in time after having been completely torn down day one upon arriving at the TVA. And now he's he's kind of learn relearning to love himself by kind of falling for himself, if that makes sense. That's kind of what I'm having to write that off as. It still creeps me out that he's basically kissing his sister, but um but it's if you fall if you go for that it's about self-love and self-acceptance. And it really is for everybody in the show, not just the Lokis, but for Mobius and for uh, Ravona R- uh, Renslayer, the judge, and for the the hunters, the various TVA agents. El- all of them went on an unexpected, from their perspective, arc in this in this short six-episode six series. You get... Um, Sylvie, who 
gets what she wants, but then kind of loses hell on the galaxy and the universe, and um, clearly is very stuck mentally where she was um, when her life was upended. Um, and she holds that very close to her wounded heart um, and, and takes things very personally because of that. Um, and then she, in the end, she gets what she wants, but she has this relationship that she develops and kind of knows that it's wrong and that she's really going to screw things up by doing this, but she does it anyway. And then we get Loki, who, you know, as I just said in the beginning of the episode, he comes into the TVA thinking one thing, he's a god, basically, and then basically discovering that that doesn't matter here. <laughs> you are an ant in our perspective and we can do with you what we need. Um, and so he goes through that arc and then seeing his his horrible, disastrous future with the death of his mother, the death of himself, and kind of discovering that he was on the wrong side the entire time and that everything that's gone bad in his life is his own fault and relearning to love himself then by falling for Sylvie and discovering what's at the end of the universe um, and the potential of everything there. And you can even say with Renslayer how she starts as this bureaucratic, uptight, um, by the book and then by the end she has she feels extremely betrayed by both her job and her co-workers Mobius and she leaves to go what does she say she wants to discover free will that is something that I would not have seen her say in the first episode because she was following the rules and now she is really following the rules backwards to find out where they can be broken I guess so everybody goes on a really big journey, and Mobius and the agents who all find out that they're that they are variants of themselves, you know, and they had been pruned as well. All of it is a story about self acceptance. It's it's such an accurate thing to say. One of the best parts about the documentary as well was Owen Wilson. Um, I don't think I'd ever really seen how Owen Wilson dresses when he can dress himself, but if what we saw in the like behind the scenes thing for the documentary, the interview is what he wears normally it's it's pretty much exactly what you'd expect he said that he really loved the name mobius he said that that's kind of his legacy is how cool the name is what's really awesome as well is his friendship with tom hiddleston and between owen wilson and tom hiddleston um wilson says that hiddleston took him into a series of meetings when they first got cast and first started the show where they would go over the character of loki for hiddleston to catch him up on absolutely everything that he needs to know about loki's experiences in the mcu about loki's character um anything like that and it made i think that was what made it so great uh mobius's obsession or rather infatuation with loki um, he was able to put all of those little details of knowing about Loki and Loki's life and Loki's personality as Mobius the character because of those real life meetings, those like teaching lessons that they had. And that's honestly really awesome. Um, it's awesome that Tom Hiddleston took the initiative there to do that in knowing that that would help make the show even better. There's also a really cute story that Owen Wilson tells about, you know, polite British Tom telling, you know, talking about his time on stage as Hamlet. And then, you know, because he's a polite British, you know, asking him, Owen, as well, if if he too has played Hamlet. <laughs> and Owen Wilson just thought that was the funniest thing, you know, yeah, t referencing his, you know, more comedic movies of Ben Stiller stuff and whatnot. <laughs> um, I, I just thought it was really funny. And then, of course, Tom... 
he kind of tells the story to Tom as they're on camera, and Tom is like, well, you never know. You could have played it in high school or something. And they talk a little bit about Shakespeare. They, they ask, um, Tom asks him, what would you, who, what would, what would be one Shakespearean play that you would be in? And I don't remember what he says. A Tale of Two Merchants or something. It's not a thing. That's something about, I don't know. I don't remember what he says, but my personal one would be A Midsummer's Night Dream. Just, you know, important information. Um, I did not know also that Gugu Mbatha-Ra is British, which is pretty awesome because I would not have guessed that at all in hearing how her character speaks. <laughs> um, she talks also about how it was cool to her to play a character from the comics who hadn't really had a chance to be fleshed out too much. So she was able to use what was there as reference, but then build up on that a lot herself. Um, and that, that must be a really, I can imagine how that would be a really great thing as an actor to be able to do, to take the bones of a character and to put the pieces together tighter so that they make sense and that they uh, match up with what the director and, ev and the script and everything needs that character to be. Um, there was a, a short little bit about the alligator that they did not have on set. It was a stuffed animal, obviously, than being an alligator on set. One of the funniest things that somebody said about it was, I believe it was the writer of the show, who was a woman, by the way, um, she said that they asked the anim the visual effects department for a handsome alligator with beautiful eyes. <laughs> I could just imagine getting that email from a writer on a show as a visual effect. Honestly, honestly, probably not the weirdest thing these visual effects artists have been asked probably one of the more fun, adorable ones, but definitely not the weirdest. <laughs> so that was really fun, um, how they talked about the physics of the Loki alligator being not really alligator physics, how it was kind of like, that's part of him being Loki, is the fact that it doesn't move really like an alligator, although they did say that they, um, they used some, I guess, bio biology footage or something to to track it was like a it was like an alligator named Wally who I think was a robot I'm not really sure what they were talking about to be honest but they were able to use this like digital sculpt of an alligator to um put in the show to show how I guess I guess they said alligator spines only move in one direction which I imagine would be side to side as opposed to forward and backwards um which makes sense you know picturing an alligator but it's still, it's like, it's kind of funky that they had to go through, you wouldn't have really thought they would have had to bother with any of that um, in making a fictional alligator Loki, but they did. Um, and that's, you know, in, in a way that's kind of cool. Um, and I also didn't notice they had the clip of it in the behind the scenes. I did not notice that when Loki alligator bit off President Loki's hand, there was a burst of blood. There was a gush of blood, guys. Go back and watch that. It, I'm surprised that made it onto the show. And finally, the last takeaway from the Loki behind the scenes was that Jonathan Majors uh, cited that part of what drew him to the role of Kang was that there were so many different versions of himself that he has lived all these different lives. Um, and that's just makes me more excited to see him as all these different versions. I don't know what we're going to see him in next. We know it's at least going to be Quantum Mania, if not something before that, like Multiverse of Madness. But oh my word, like, that would be so cool uh, to see, like, Jonathan Majors Kang in as many variations, basically, as we have seen Loki in this show. That's, that's kind of what I'm hoping and expecting. 
Um, but yeah, behind the scenes was a lot better. This one was really great. We had a lot of different talk about um, sets and set design and costume design and filming decisions and stuff like that, which is what I expected from all of the behind the scenes stuff so far, but this is really the first time we got it. Um, so I'm hoping going forward, we're going to have any other, any of the other Disney plus assembled episodes that are the MCU behind the scenes. Hopefully those are all going to be much more along the lines of what this one was. I know I said I was going to talk about Dune here and I am. Um, I just have to preface it with the fact that I know nothing about Dune. I know it was a movie at one point in life before. I have no idea if it comes from a video game or a comic or a book or I, I think it's a book. I have no idea. That's my level of knowledge with this, right? Okay, starting there. Now, I am excited as hell for this movie <laughs> because not only does it have a stellar motherfucking cast, it everybody in the cast has been just seemingly thrilled that they are in this movie and that they got to film this movie. They seem to be completely like just just completely head over heels with it. And whenever I see a movie where the cast is that excited about the movie, I see that as a good sign. Uh, cast here being, this is like, do they even have all of them in here? I think they don't even have all of them in here. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, who is like that kid everybody's obsessed with now because he's skinny, I guess. Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, David Desmalkian, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Zendaya, Shang Chen, Sharon Duncan Brewster, Charlotte Rampling, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. Wow, that, I mean, even if it sucks, this is gonna be a fun as shit movie. <laughs> Um, pretty much from what I'm understanding plot-wise, just based on me having watched this trailer this morning, this is a story of colonists. We are seeing Pocahontas rehashed again. Um, <laughs> no problem with that. Just, you know, uh, it's, it's what it is for sure. <laughs> um, it seems that the main character is the son of the leader of the colonists who are attacking this planet, trying to bring them religion as, you know, colonists tend to do. Um, and he's, like, dissenting from their mission or something. It seems to be what it is. So, um, whatever the hell else it's about, I don't really care. I'm, I'm super into it. It's a sci-fi fantasy adventure starring a bunch of cool actors who seem to have had a fucking fun as time, fun as hell time filming it. So, that's all it really takes for me to, to be into this. And I am, I am super into it now. We actually had two castings this week. I forgot to mention it at the beginning. It's the Batgirl movie casting, and there's also another actress who's been added to Black Panther. So let's start with Batgirl. It has cast uh, Leslie Grace as Batgirl herself, as uh, Babs... Babs, I was going to say Babstar. That's not right. Barbara Gordon. Um, she is, I, was, I believe, uh, somewhat Latina. Um, and she recently starred in the, I believe it was Netflix movie, The Heights. Um, and I have not seen that, but absolutely everybody who I have discussed this casting with has said that that is a great movie because of her and only her. Um, so that's really, that's really good. It seems that, um, she, let's see, we have directors... 
Abdil El Arbi and Bilal Fala are going to be directing the movie. The script is coming from Christina Hodson, who was the oh nice, who was the scripter behind Birds of Prey and the upcoming Flash movie. And then Christina Burr is producing. The fact that there are so many women on board is very exciting to me because that's what they did with Birds of Prey, and it worked so well. You're making a movie about women. Put women behind the goddamn camera. And that's an awesome thing to see happening again here. Um, oh yes, here it says she is, she is Dominican American. So that's good that she, um, you know, I, she doesn't have naturally red hair. They may give her red hair in this. And yes, red hair kind of is like one of the physical mainstays for Barbara Gordon. But I would also like to remind people that if she didn't have red hair, she would still be Batgirl. It's not the cornerstone of her character, it's just a physical feature that she's known for having. She would still be Batgirl if she had any other hair type, if she had any other skin color, really any other background. You know, as long as her dad's still the commish at some point in history, you got Barbara Gordon. You know, that's, that's what you need. And, and she falls, uh, especially learning, I got to watch the Heights, but especially learning that she was in that and people really, really enjoyed it. Again, nothing but good news. Um, I haven't seen her in anything specifically herself. Um, I'm just looking over other casting news that we've had recently from the DCU. And it's all things that I've discussed, like Sasha Kelly's Supergirl and Rachel Ziegler being in um, an unknown role in Shazam Fury of the Gods. Um, but this, this is probably the most exciting one. One thing that a lot of articles are noting, and I kind of feel like it has to be noted as well, um, Joss Whedon originally had been handed a Batgirl movie in response to having to have to bring him on to Justice League to finish that movie. They said, well, if you finish off Justice League for us, we'll give you a Batgirl movie. Can we all now? And that was 2017, and I remember everybody being more or less like that might be good when that was announced. Could you imagine that now with how far, um, with how far Joss Whedon has fallen? Could you even imagine him being in charge of a Batgirl movie now? Ugh, nothing but butt shots and like you saw Avengers, right? <laughs> like we all saw that movie. We all saw the the changes that he made in Justice League, apparently. It would have been just a lot of gratuitous butt shots and fake feminism. Joss Whedon is like the king of those guys who goes out and is like, oh yeah, man, support women's rights and blah, blah, blah. But then in reality, they don't. <laughs> That's everything I've heard about Joss Whedon in the past couple of years. That's what I see his personality being. So having moved this not only to being a woman-led project, but to being a woman of color-led project, I am very excited for this in a way that I would never have been if Joss Whedon was still involved. The other casting news that we had this week was the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever, has cast Michaela, I'm so sorry, I don't know how to say her name, Michaela Cole in an unknown role. Uh, there are a couple of things that she's been in that you may know, apparently Black Mirror, Chewing Gum, uh, I guess she was in The Last Jedi, which... I'm trying to picture what she, who she was. Was she... I'm not honestly sure who she was in The Last Jedi. Um, and she was on a... Oh, gosh. 
the show I May Destroy You, I don't remember where that was on. I think it was on HBO, but that was her show as well. Um, so she's got some incredible things behind her as far as not just acting, but, well, yes, acting, but acting across a variety of, um, a variety of genres, um, and very, very different things. Where I May Destroy You was apparently, uh, a show about a... A popular writer, it says, I'm just reading this here, a popular writer processing rape trauma in contemporary London. I have not seen that show. I heard some really phenomenal stuff about it, and I'm pretty sure it won. Oh, yeah, it said she's received four Emmy nominations. That's phenomenal. <laughs> so she seems to be an incredibly strong woman to have added to Ryan Coogler's, uh, Ryan Coogler's people of the cast and crew. Um, as far as who she's going to be playing, I have a couple of ideas here. Um, or rather, I have seen a couple of ideas across the internet um, that I think are really good. So there's two different ideas. One of them, um, there were rumors that the team, the Midnight Angels, was going to be appearing in this second movie. And they are they are led by a character called Aneka. She tra well, I guess she trains them. And she also trains the Dormelage. Um, and she only first appeared in 2009. So she's a fairly modern character. Um, but that is one of the theories as to who she could have been cast to being. And while that's an attractive idea, I like the second theory better. And I'm, I'm going to put my money behind this one for several reasons. The second character is called Madame Slay. First of all, that name... Could you imagine the cultural phenomenon to have a black woman on the screen playing a character called Madame Slay as a villainess? Oh my god, I I can I can already picture Car uh, uh, Megan the Stallion writing her a fucking theme song. Like, oh my god, dude, I that would be so cool. Talk about badass bitches, like wow, like the name Madame Slay. The, you, oh, you know they would give her an amazing costume. Oh, plus I'm pretty sure I saw a picture of her last night and she's like surrounded by leopards. Dude, dude. Please, please give me Madame Slay as like a queen of the villainesses. I can just, I can just see that being so perfect. But the other reason why I think Madame Slay would be cool and more of a, I can definitely see this as something a route they would go kind of decision. Um, in the comics, she was a love interest of Killmonger. Killmonger, we know in the movies, died in the end of Black Panther, right? And he's going to appear in the what if stuff as the king of Wakanda. She was a love interest of Killmonger. Not only that, she was able to resurrect him in the comics after he died. This is she's gonna be Madame Slay, right? It's gotta be Madame Slay. How are they gonna how are how like that would just that's just too perfect. I'm sorry, it's just too perfect. They cannot possibly ignore that. This isn't even one of those situations where I'm like, oh, I hope it's not what I think it is because then that means that they outdid even what I could think of. No, I, I want it to be this. I want her to be Madame Slay. Honestly, could care less if she brings back Killmonger. That just makes it a better reason. Her having that connection to him makes it just an even better reason to bring her into this shit. You're going to have probably a female leader of Wakanda as well, who she can go up against as woman-on-woman -woman battle sequences. Like, oh my god. This just would rock so hard if they cast her as Madame Slay. There is one other theory people are talking about potentially having them recast 
Shuri because of certain comments the actress had made <laughs> at very bad times, including the fact that she doesn't think they should be making a second movie. So I don't think that they would recast her unless it was dire. Um, but if you hadn't figured it out, my, my vote here is for Madame Slay. I would... <sighs> I just, I, the, the, the visuals that I'm thinking of that she could be, like, I'm just looking at a photo of her here and she just looks, oh my God, this woman is stunning. Cheekbones that reach the, 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 the moon. I just like, I could imagine her as being the hottest, baddest villain in the goddamn world as Madame Slay. I'm just having that fantasy now, and I'm like, let, let's get back into the real world and finish off this, uh, this podcast today. <laughs> to wrap things up, we're going to talk really quickly about the Galactus HasLab updates. Uh, this year they had, I believe it was 7,000 that they had to hit to fulfill the Kickstarter, just baseline, and then they had additional goals after that. This year, since last year they were not prepared for how many people were going to want the Sentinel, the Galactus HasLab, they made 14,000 their minimum, but since it's getting really close to that, they've already put out teasers for what their, ooh, I just sent my microphone, for what their first two additional add-ons for, or I guess rewards, whatever you want to call them, are going to be for this Kickstarter HasLab. It was honestly a stupid image that you can pretty much guess who the characters are. It's going to be two sentinels. Oh my gosh, that's totally not the right terminology. It's going to be two heralds of Galactus as the first two add-ons. Well, the stretch goals, I guess, is what they're kind of called. Um, and what they put up was this image of Galactus and then two had the two figures in there and they blacked them out. What it really looks like is a male figure and a female figure. The male figure has the Kirby bubbles effect and is on a surfboard. The female figure has really big hair. I'm thinking Frankie Ray Nova and Silver Surfer. I know Silver Surfer has come out a couple of times in the past few years. One of those was a, well, I think they're both Walgreens exclusives, I think. But I know the, the standard Silver Surfer is very hard to find now and is going for quite a pretty penny as far as toy collecting costs go. And the second Silver Surfer that came out was actually Silver Surfer Black, um, who is a more modern thing in the comics, much, much after he was ever Galactus's Herald. So that's not the correct one to have if you want him to be a Herald of Galactus. Um, so that would be why they would give us an additional Silver Surfer to the ones that are already out on the market because of pricing and availability issues for the appropriate Silver version of him. The other one is almost entirely going to be Frankie Ray Nova. She is the only female Herald that Galactus has had. I am a little bit of a fan of her. Um, it's kind of funny, actually. I started reading up on her history a few months ago, and almost immediately after that, I started seeing her in the comics everywhere. Um, and it seems now, here we are again with a Frankie Ray Nova coming into HasLab, or Hasbro's HasLab. Um, if it is anything but Frankie Ray Nova, I'm going to rage quit toy collecting because why would you put anyone but his heralds with him? <laughs> but it's, it's most definitely going to be her. She is entirely gold and depending on what version of her they're going to take because she's had a few different kind of somewhat varied looks, um, she could probably be um, more of a, a jumpsuit kind of 80s design, or it could just be the straight, like, silver surfer, just straight gold, like he has straight silver. 
Um, sometimes you can see like clothing underneath her gold for some reason, but other time, most of the time not. So I'll be curious to see if they bother with any of that extra detailing, knowing Hasbro, probably not. Uh, but that's, that's the first two updates that we are pretty certain we're going to be having with the Galactus HasLab. If it goes anything like last year, they're going to have no problem hitting those stretch goals and getting at least those two figures, if not more. I'm just happy to find out they're not doing battle damaged uh, add-ons this year because they did do that with the Sentinel. And while I can see how that would be a bonus to people who are going to do a lot of photography and setups with their Sentinel, if they had done that twice in a row, the first the first uh, like power-up thing being just battle damage parts. I'm sorry, but that's lazy. That's the easiest thing you could have done. You got the mold you already had and you messed it up a little bit. <laughs> but I'm glad it's not that. I'm excited for Frankie Raynova. I'm very excited to see um, how she's going to look. I imagine she's going to be on the Frank Cho body. If you collect action figures, you know which one I'm talking about um, for, for Hasbro. So really excited for that. So hopefully we'll get that officially revealed in the next couple of days. Finally, I did mention that I wanted to talk about a show that I've been infatuated with recently, and that is actually a show that's on, is it Freeform? It used to be ABC Family, but this show is not a show for kids. There's a lot of sex and there's a lot of violence and death, so I'm not really sure how it's on Freeform, but it is. It's called Motherland Fort Salem. I just want to do a brief, you know, overview of why I like it in case somebody here likes it or thinks it sounds good and ends up going to like it, because I really enjoy it. Um, it's basically about a reality where a world like ours where back in the Salem witch trials, instead of having all of their witch sisters hung and tried and etc., one of the witches in the first wave um, basically promised to the American government that every daughter, every matrilineal witch, meaning uh, going down from mothers to daughters, um, and I guess if, 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 the mother has, if the witch mother has a son, he would be a matrilineal witch as well they um, will henceforth, every every matrilineal witch in America is a, a soldier, basically. And that is what the armed forces are made up of. And when they turn 18, they get brought out to basic training and they um, live out their life as a soldier, pretty much. And that's a really cool concept, honestly. And the lady who made that deal back in the day is actually still alive. It's not normal for witches in this world to live that long, but she's still alive because she has like nine other witches. They call them biddies, which is like this weird term they use and they're very creepy, but she is constantly surrounded by these nine other witches who are all old women who she is always feeding off of their life energy to keep herself alive and youthful. That is pretty wild. Um, I, I really, really dig it. It's awesome. Another thing that's unique about the show is the concept they have for marriage. Um, I'm not sure if it's just in witch society or if it's in all earth society, but at least in their witch society, marriages are not lifelong relationships. They are contracts with a term and a set amount of children and things that you will be giving back and forth. It's a contract for partnership for a set amount of time. And therefore, through a witch's life, they may have several marriages that simply last throughout their allotted time and go into the next relationship. And that way they keep like it's like a political thing and that it's like the for for keeping the witch blood ties really strong so they can keep the you know the strong witch bloodlines connected and tied together and you know everything like that 
it's, it's, I just think it's a cool concept. It's, it's a very modern concept, and it's, it's pretty unique. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff going on in the show, obviously, but it's mostly women. And the thing that, that really struck me the last couple of episodes was, um, you know, you'll watch things sometimes and they'll be like, oh yeah, I can see how they like, you know, I could, I could picture them behind the scenes redoing stuff and I can picture this actress going home and changing out of her clothes or whatever into her regular clothes. I, I, you know, I can picture them at a red carpet event. No, I, I, I cannot picture these actresses outside of their characters. And I, I think that's just because they're really that good at their characters, at their acting. Um, I just, it's really good. That's all I can say is this is a really good show. And if you're into any kind of like, um, which shows, I guess this is definitely something to check out. And that wraps up this week's Friday podcast 26B. Thank you very much for tuning in for whatever amount of time you were able to do so for. Uh, I guess it's very hot where I am in this part of the world. It is full into summer, so please do yourself a favor and stay hydrated. Uh, have fun, but stay hydrated. Read lots of comics, be nice to people, and as always, rest in peace, John Schnepp. We will stay fed. We will forever stay sweaty on your behalf. <laughs>